Hello, and welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. Violet Moller. In this episode, we will be visiting one of the most magnificent periods in our cultural history, the Italian Renaissance. Our expert guide, Mary Hollingsworth, is going to take us into the dark and brutal world of politics and war that dominated this period. In her sumptuous new book, Princes of the Renaissance, Mary opens the door to this paradoxical world where princes spent as much time making war as they did making merry, and conspicuous consumption reached new heights. She draws us into the tangled web of dynasties who ruled the Italian city-states in this period, constantly vying with one another for political power and cultural prestige. The complex interrelationships between these great ruling families shaped the political history of the peninsula and their patronage fueled one of the greatest flowerings of culture the world has ever seen as artists and craftsmen were put to work painting sculpting designing and building the wonders that still draw visitors to italy in their millions today an expert on renaissance art and culture mary hollingsworth is the author of the medici which won the telegraph book of the year award she has also written specialist art history books, including Conclave 1559, The Borgias, The Cardinal's Hat, and Patronage in 16th century Italy. I spoke to Mary the other day. Mary, welcome to Travels Through Time. Thank you very much for coming on. Well, thank you for asking me. We're going to talk today about your absolutely sumptuous book, Princes of the Renaissance, which um, is, is just such a treat because it is bursting with the most beautiful colour images, which are all integrated and, you know, it's quite an unusual, it's, it's a treat, a rare treat to have so many wonderful pictures. All in colour. I, I, I can't claim any credit, any credit at all for that. It's the publishers and it is the most stunning looking book. I completely agree. With it really is. And, and the design of it is so beautiful. And I love at the back, there's all sorts of family trees and tables and maps and extra information, um, which is very, very useful because the stories of these princes um, are quite complex and their family, families, there's so much intermarriage that was going on. And um, so before we start and we actually go back to the year that you've chosen, I was hoping that you could explain to us a bit about the structure of the book, you know, how you chose these different moments and stories to tell. It's a series of essays dealing with more, usually more than one character in um, of, of uh, an important prince of the Renaissance. So because there, there are only room for 12 chapters, whereas there are an awful lot more princes and they're all quite closely connected. And um, so I've chosen quite deliberately sort of things that compare and contrast type characters. So the first chapter is about two men, completely different backgrounds who brutally, violently came to power, one in Milan and one in Naples. 
in the beginning of the 15th century. And then there are other chapters that deal with brothers and sisters, that deal with one that deals with husband and wife. And there are political rivals rather than, I mean, by the 16th century, they tend tend to be less war and more jaw, if you like. Um, But there's sort of issues of status and that kind of thing is one particular chapter. And how you set up a dynasty, um, particularly if you've got a pope, in your family uh, is another chapter and there's so so i've chosen i've chosen representative people which gives some idea not just of the the historical facts that you know events that occur during the period but also that give you some sense of the real people involved you know and the relationships between them you know as i say like kings and like husbands and wives and and brothers and sisters and in-laws and in fact all the princes were quite closely related and they're hold on power radically altered in the late 1520s so just when Charles V he was king of Spain ruler of the Netherlands and emperor also banished colonies in of the in the Americas when he was an immensely powerful man and he effectively conquered Italy less directly slightly less directly than I'm making it sound but that's the background to the year I've chosen but it's also the nub if you like of the book because practically all the princes lives were totally disrupted by these wars and by particularly by the emperor himself and can you just tell us a bit about how Italy was structured because obviously Italy didn't exist as a as a, a united entity in those days. Italy was divided up into a lot of small tiny little states some of them great big states like the kingdom of Naples which stretched from just south of Rome right down to the heel and the toe of Italy so it was a very big land but not very fertile so not very wealthy whereas Milan which is a duchy in the north, was quite large, but on the very fertile Po Valley and Po Plain, and also on the trades to northern Europe. So Milan was a much more smaller, but much wealthier um, state. Then there were tiny little states like Mantua, which is really very small indeed. And Urbino's very small, and Ferrara's quite small. Then there were these, these were all princely states. And there was also basically Florence and Venice were both republics slightly different in their political makeup. And Venice, by and large, historically has had kept out of Italian politics in establishing trade links between um, Constantinople and Northern Europe, sort of being the link. So uh, that was a, a com- trading priorities were totally economic. Yeah, they were good at kind of keeping out of things, weren't they? And, and yeah. s- steering their own course. <laughs> Yeah. And also, you know, physically, for anyone who's been to Venice, you know, it is physically off. Yeah. Off the off the mainland. Yeah. You know, and in the old days, there wasn't a, a causeway, you know, you had to go across by boat. And and, and that stood them in good stead, you know, several times when um, invading armies arrived and they just sort of couldn't get across the water to attack the city. Exactly, exactly. But it was a fear. You know, there were occasions when they, you know, they were literally sort of the the imperial army was eyeing them across the across the across the lagoon. Yeah. And luckily it didn't. But I mean, you know, if you'd had that sort of it, it would be possible. It would it wasn't impossible to invade Venice, but it wasn't well, it was a bit of a I would have thought a bit of a daunting task. Yeah. And then of course there were the papal states, which yeah. were sort of another uh, the papal states are quite complicated because they are a series of quite often very small states. Uh, Rimini is a papal state. Ferrara, oddly, is a papal state, but that's in a slightly different context. And Urbino is a papal state. And they're the the sort of the the towns and cities, Rimini, all those states along the sort of east coast of um, 
of Italy, the Adriatic coast. And historically, they were given, in inverted commas, apparently a gift from the emperor to the pope. It just happens isn't true, but this is what they believed. And they owed their loyalty exclusively to the pope, and the pope could kick them out at will, and did, you know. Urbino, one particular instance, the Pope wanted Urbino for his nephew. And so he just said, told the present, the proper Duke of Urbino to get packing and go. And that was it. He had to leave. And that was a crucial part of all the sort of constantly changing balances of power that was going on in this period, wasn't it? That you'd get a Pope who was a Medici or, and suddenly he would be rewarding all his relatives with the best fiefs. And when one pope died, you know, another pope would be elected with a whole different, completely different sort of political set of political priorities and a completely different family would sort of come to dominate. And not enough emphasis is put on how radically papal policy changed with the election of a new pope. Whereas by and large, the princes tended, you know, that their sort of policy changing was dictated more by slightly more by events, but it was a much more smooth process. So it's fascinating. So you've got these layers of the princes and then the papacy. And then, of course, on top of that, the um, Holy Roman Empire and the imperial power on top. all Twirling around. And the king of France. Of course. Yeah. And then, <laughs> Minor and then, detail. <laughs> and then the Turks as well, who everyone was basically fighting. At this stage, you know, the Turks are um, coming up through the Balkans, approaching the, the southern borders of the empire of Hungary. So, I mean, it's in flux. Everything's in flux. The one pole around which everything was swinging really was the emperor um, because he was so powerful. And it's interesting that when he died, he divided his, he didn't leave the whole lot to his, um, his son inherited Spain, but his, he left the, the empire. He encouraged his brother to become emperor. Yes. I mean, although they were related, it was just too, it was it was too, too much. It was too, yes, exactly. Um, and I think that was one of the things that, really comes across in your book which is you know you're very interested in patronage and the arts and there is this sort of tension between the constant wars and battles and the brutality of the lives of many of these princes and their subjects but then that contrasts with the the beauty and the luxury of their lives when they weren't on the battlefield and I, I just think that's such an interesting feature. It's really fascinating that they'd be but they, they knew how to enjoy themselves that's for certain. <laughs> they did. They did. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that later. But the other thing that uh, struck me very much, which I think is important to point out, especially with, in, with relation to Charles V, is that these courts were, were, were peripatetic. So they, they were moving around almost constantly, uh, visiting one another. And, and then I love the idea of everybody setting off to Venice to go shopping, which seemed to happen on quite a regular basis. So can you just talk a bit more about that? They had this fair on Ascension Day, and it was a huge event. You know, all the Venetians had to close their shops. I mean, and they had to open booths on They were sort of, people were selling very specific types of things. So luxury goods and on sale to, you know, to these tourists who all flocked in vast quantities. I mean, not just merchants, but quite ordinary people, as well as princes 
and and their wives and mothers and mothers-in-laws and you know they they made a huge party of it you know luckily for some you know we've got quite a lot of letters and things so we know what they did you know they sort of arrive and they would parade about and talk to their friends and go yeah buy things amazing particularly um materials and sort of things like feathers and sort of yeah luxury goods from the east and yeah, sort yeah. of yeah, luxury things from these, not necessarily very valuable stones, but sort of sort of glossy stuff that made you look good. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Okay, well I think now, um, now that we've set the scene so beautifully, um, let's go to your year. So if you could travel back, Mary, to a year in history, which year would it be? I think I would go back to fifteen thirty in Italy. It's a big year in, in Italian history and it's, it's an important, it's a watershed moment and the, the late sort of from 1527 to 1530, a lot of things in Italy change and this is the sort of the beginning of the new era where Italy is very unquestionably dominated by Charles V. Okay, so b- before we go to your first scene, can you just set that up for us a bit? So Charles V arrives the year before, doesn't he? He arrives in, yes, he arrives in Italy in um, Genoa. He sails into Genoa in August 1529. That's his first visit to Italy. And bearing in mind that he's, his army had sacked Rome two years before um, and his um, armies had also conquered Milan and Naples at this, by this stage. You know, he was basically Mr Big. I mean, he was in charge of, he was the most powerful figure in, in European in European politics at the time, partly because his rivalry with Francis I, Francis lost, Francis did have a, a Naples and Milan, um, but then lost them to Charles V's armies. Don't forget Charles V also had not only the Spanish, his Spanish soldiers, but also the imperial armies to fight for him, whereas the French only had the French. So the, the French and the imperial um, battle is sort of, the battlefield is Italy at the moment, basically. In, in 1530, they are very, they are briefly, they are at peace-ish, you'll see. Okay, well, should we start, should we go to your first scene? Can you t- tell us, tell us where we are, what's happening? It's February the 24th and you're in Bologna, uh, which is a, um, a papal city in the north, just north of Florence, in between Florence and Milan, I suppose you would say. And we are here because this is the point at which Clement VII, the Pope, crowns Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. And this is a tradition that goes back, um, the Pope crowning the Holy Roman Emperor, which is why it's called the Holy Roman Emperor, goes back to Charlemagne, who was the first coronation was in 800 AD in St. Peter's. And this is the last coronation that ever takes place, that the Popes don't crown the Holy Roman Emperors after this. So in one sense, historical sense, it's, you know, it's, a, it's the last of a, of a, you know, of an important and long tradition. And why is it happening in Bologna rather than Rome? Good point. Um, well, technically, it, it happens according to the letters and the diplomatic kind of arguments. It's, it's a political excuse because Charles needs, he's arrived at Genoa, which is also in northern Italy. He's arrived with a lot of soldiers and he needs to get his soldiers and everybody up into the empire to help help his brother, who um, is the Archduke of of, um, of Austria, to to stop the invading Turkish armies who are approaching Hungary. Right. Okay. And so we're told in the 
in the diplomatic correspondence. But as it happens, you'll find out it clearly not absolutely true. And there's probably one reason he's, he was almost certainly extremely reluctant to go to Rome so soon after the sack of Rome, which had devastated, I mean, literally wrecked the city in 15, 1527, uh, so two years before. And so I don't think that is one of the principal reasons why he didn't want to go to Rome. And is that because he didn't want to face up to what he'd been responsible for, do you think? Or... I think what he didn't want was, I mean, he was quite a modest person. And I think what he, what he really didn't, I mean, he didn't like what, he, what had happened. And would you want to sort of go, go through the city, be slightly nervous of what yeah. a mob might do to you? That's true, that's true. And also, given that it was meant to be a celebration, you know, the, the coronation was meant, you know, would involve a lot, a lot of ceremonial, outdoor ceremonial. You know, you, you wouldn't really want, the option for people to take pot shots at you. No, that's true. Um, so describe to us, can you describe the coronation? What would it look like? I presume it was in a, in a church. It took place in the church, not in the cathedral in Bologna, but in San Petronio, which is the largest church in, in Bologna. And it was transformed in it with, with sort of you know, screens and things into uh, two or three chapels of St. Peter's. This is the con- not, not the present St. Peter's, this is the old Constantinian Basilica. Right. Much, much older than San Petronio, which is a Gothic church. So it was quite weird. They didn't literally hang draperies all over it, but they they put all the symbolic items into the so the chap the chapel where the coronation was to take place was a replica in in wood of the of the chapel in in the Constantinian Basilica. And there was also a copy of the porphyry disc, which was placed on the ground in this exactly the same place where the slab was in St. Peter's, where Charlemagne knelt to be crowned so it was quite you know it was sort of it was meant to be St Peter's there was a sort of sense that you were that you were in the, the right place kind of thing and presumably that you know the, the artists that and uh, craftsmen that you talk so eloquently about in your book were were sort of drafted in and, and told please can you design this so that it... you know the Bolognese must have been going you know rubbing their hands with joy when they heard <laughs> that the <laughs> what was going to happen but they think this was one of the very first time occasions when everybody saw Charles V for the first time and one of the people one of the people there said rather surprisingly and he wrote this letter he's not he's not tall but short like me and stoops a little and he's got a long small face and his mouth is always open well he had the famous Habsburg chin didn't he he had the lamp, famous lantern jaw but then at the end of the letter he says but he is well formed graceful and good mannered <laughs> I mean, he was not a big jovial emperor, you know, he didn't sort of look the part at all. No. Um, and so while they're, the, he, he's, he, the coronation happens, but they're there for several months, all of them together, all the great and the good. They arrive in sort of October of 1529 and they leave at the end of March. And one of the things that, I mean, one of the things that they, there has to be, that has to be done is an awful lot of political negotiation between Charles V and Clement VII. And that, that was quite interesting because they put up, they, the two men were put up in the town hall, which is quite close to, the, to San Petronio. But they were given adjoining apartment, apartments with adjoining bedrooms with a, with a linking door. Yeah, I love that in your book, sort of sneaking in and having chats about that. Yeah, out of each other's bedrooms. But also the other thing, the unbelievable idea of, you know, but Bologna's got 50,000 people. It was quite large, but not a big town in those days, city in those days. But, you know, on top of that, you had the entire papal court 
and all all the Spanish imperial court. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. How how did they fit in? I mean, did they have for, for sort of servants? Did they have fields of tents and that kind of thing? I mean, it was winter as well, and Bologna gets quite cold in the winter, doesn't it? How how did they manage? Did they build any new buildings? No, no, they would they they put people up in palaces, and I mean, certainly. Isabella d'Este rented a palace. I mean, a lot of people would rent, you know, rented out houses. They moved out of their rooms and, you know, shared with three households or something, would all go and live together and rent, share the rent of the other two. Yeah, and also in those days, you know, the, the, the idea of having your own bedroom and your own, you know, that, that just didn't sort of exist, did it? People lived in a much more communal life. And the important point is nearly everybody had somebody else you know, sleeping in their room. I mean, it was normal for, you know, for a king or prince of whatever to have, you know, valet or somebody sleeping in the room. Obviously, not all the time. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, for sort of, it would be the normal thing to do would be to have an extra person, at least one, in your bedroom because, you know, you could be, you could be murdered. I mean, you know. Yeah, I imagine it was a bit like the Edinburgh Festival. So when, you know, in, in the summer, when the, the population doubles or something for, for one month. Exactly, it would have doubled. Um, Bologna's would have doubled. Yeah. But it was the social event of the century. I mean, absolutely. And of course, the other thing is that which we forget is that everybody travelled with their valets, their stewards, their equerries, and even their cooks and their carvers. And there were sort of competitive dinner parties, you know, apart from the balls and the banquets and tournaments. And they went hunting in the foothills of the Apennines. But they also um, had these, you know, incredibly competitive dinner parties, you know, who could put, you know, who could have the most, the grandest or the the most intellectual, not only the cream of the aristocracy was there, but also the cr intellectual cream of uh, Europe was also present, you know, it, because they're employed as secretaries, humanists were employed as secretaries and things like yeah. that. But anyway, the, the people who really made money out of it were the second-hand dealers of Bologna. Well, I was going to say, the, the grocers of Bologna must have also made quite a lot of money. And oh. renting out second-hand, you know, renting out chairs and sort of tables. Yeah on silver to sort of you know just for the dinner parties yeah. fantastic okay so um let's go to your second scene now which is um just up the road in mantua some sort of um 50 oh. 80 miles yep. away and on the 2nd of april in mantua federigo gonzaga um who is the prince in at this stage he's he has invited Charles V to come and stay with him. And this is the first reason why there is the concept of him having to get to, to the empire to help out his, his brother quickly takes on a slightly thinner line because he spends four weeks in Mantua sort of heavy and, you know, games and play. And the, one of the most extraordinary things about it is a sideline, a slight sideline, is that this is the point at which... Um, Titian's career suddenly goes from being pretty good to stellar because Titian meets the, the, um, the emperor in Bologna and the, the emperor isn't terribly impressed with him and offers him a, you know, a ducat, which frankly is an insult, and a ducat to paint his portrait and, and, and Titian is rather insulted. But Federigo Gonzaga, who is a friend, of, a patron of Titian, convinces Titian that he should don't give up. And so when the emperor comes to Mantua, Federigo Gonzaga shows Charles V, his, the portraits that Titian has painted of him, the Duke, Gonzaga. And Titian is so impressed that from then on he becomes, he is the Habsburg court painter. A, only other person really that he paints for after 1530 is the, uh, the Venetian government. Practically everything else is for, for the emperor or the emperor's family. 
art is a very important point in about Federico Gonzaga. He's got to be one of the most impressive patrons of the of the arts in um, 16th century Italy. And Charles, Charles V, for various reasons, rewards Federico Gonzaga. So he is now Duke of Mantua, whereas at the end of March, he was still Marquis of Mantua. So he's just been made a Duke and he gives puts on four weeks of heavy entertainment, which culminates in a sort of big party on the 2nd of April, which starts as a sort of lunch party. And then there is, they, then they play tennis for four hours, real tennis. Then there's dancing. Then there's a three hour long. And, and just tell us about, uh, tell us about the room that they're in, because it's. It, the it, room that they're in is staggering. And this is the thing, this it's setting, the setting is the Palazzo Te, which is, is one of the most, it's one of the, well, it's one of the top Renaissance, um, magical Renaissance buildings ever. But it's built by Federico Gonzaga commissioned his architect, Giulio Romano, to convert his father's stable block into a suburban villa. And Giulio Romano is very clever and he understands exactly how to do things, you know, how to make a, make something look good, but not cost very much. And particularly by, he would build, built in brick, which is quick, and it was covered with stucco to, so that it looked like stone. And he had an astonishing talent as a painter decorator. I mean, his frescoes, just unbelievably awesome but fresco of course is also quick and cheap so there was a hall a front big entrance hall which is decorated with life-size portraits of Federico Gonzaga's horses these are race horses that have won races but the banquet takes place in in the banqueting hall which is uh, decorated with scenes of Cupid the marriage of Cupid and the psyche and it showcases the very ribald sense of humour that was shared both by Federico um, Gonzaga and Giulio Romano. And it's completely covered with very drunk men and women in various states of undress, You're surrounded by satyrs and goats and things like this, enjoying the sexual pleasures of life quite explicitly in certain occasions. It's, it's a setting for a very, very decadent dinner party. It's perfect. How do you think, because there seems to be this other tension between... You know, the, as you described, these incredibly erotic pagan um, depictions um, of, of, you know, of people lounging around feeding each other grapes with not very many clothes on. How did they, how did they kind of fit that in with the Christianity, which was very much, you know, the structure of their lives? And, and I, I think that's, that's a sort of, there's a tension there. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that. I think that one of the tensions there is that exists between Protestantism and Catholicism. I mean, they, there is a sense that um, I mean, one of the things that, for example, it's worth bearing in mind is that this in, in the whole the banquet, the second of April, but also the whole four weeks or most of the four weeks, Charles is being entertained in Mantua. It's during Lent, and normally um, you'd expect people to be eating only fish not meat but the the menus we don't have detailed menus but we do have sort of the, the point is there was meat and fish on the menus um i would say that they haven't that that sybaritic pleasures were augustine who says something st augustine who says make me good but not yet <laughs> well and i suppose if the pope was you know also enjoying himself and having lots of mistresses and banquets then maybe there was less sort of pressure for certain, and by the way, at the one point, the Pope didn't come for this. Um, the um, didn't join them at Mantua, but it is worth bearing in mind he did have an illegitimate son, but he pretended that it wasn't his. I mean, there were a lot of popes who had a lot of 
family yeah. illegitimate children and whatever. presumably they thought you know they could live their lives however they wanted and then as long as they built enough churches and you know endowed enough chapels and paid for indulgences to be said for their souls then they'd be okay hello it's artemis at travels through time we're incredibly proud to be partnering with jordan lloyd and Colorgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colorgraph.co. At colorgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colorization work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colorized photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Okay, well, I think now we should leave, sadly, leave the sumptuous banquet and um, move on to our third scene, which is not going to be quite as much fun or as decadent, I don't think. Well, no, I mean, this is the thing that in the context of these last, you know, the the massive sort of... um, um, parties in Bologna and then this huge entertainment four weeks of hunting and and you know sort of basically eating and drinking 60 miles so similar distance south of Bologna as Mantua is from the north is Florence and Florence in Florence at the um on the 15th of April which is Good Friday is the day I've chosen over 200 people were dying each day from starvation and the city was under siege by the imperial army, uh, Charles V's army. Now, the whole deal was Charles V wanted to be crowned. Clement VII was prepared to crown him, but hoped and what extracted from him promised that in exchange that he, the emperor's army, could be used to force the republic to to collapse, as it were, in Florence, and so that the illegitimate son, Clement VII's illegitimate son, Alessandro, would be made duke. And the Florentines learned about this, they had learned about this the year before, when it became, when the Pope and the Emperor agreed to the betrothal of their, of their illegitimate children. So the Pope's illegitimate son was betrothed to the Emperor's illegitimate daughter. Yeah, okay, so just a bit of background there, though. So, so Florence had been ruled by the Medici family no not at all they certainly were in a very powerful position but they didn't rule it and the florence was a republic and it had a republican constitution and within the context of the republican constitution the the medici did achieve more power than they should have done but they were then exiled because they were kicked out for precisely that reason in 1494 and then they came back when clement's the seventh cousin, Leo X, was elected Pope in 1513. So they, they were figureheads of a republic, not, this is still, it's worth bearing in mind, Florence is still a republic. And in 1527, they exiled the Medici again in the aftermath of the sack right. of Rome. Okay. The okay. imperial army had sacked Rome. The, the, the Republicans in Florence went, great, let's just get rid of the bloody Medici again. 
they sent them packing. So this is a kind of it's it's it really matters the Florentines. They you know it really matters. And that's very much connected to the um, the humanist the revival of classical ideas and you know the, the idea of a republic rather than um, a monarchy or an oligarchy. Is is that correct? Well, it's true, but they are both tradition they're both part of the ancient roman tradition if you think about it uh imperial rome is also um part of the ancient roman tradition it is an important point that the republicans republican florence wasn't remotely interested in reviving in the imperial tradition of rome in fact they sort of that was consciously something they did not want to do but they definitely the florentine humanists looked towards towards ancient roman republic pre-imperial yeah. so pre-caesar yeah. Uh, for their inspiration, for their ideas. So, you know, their heroes are people like Cicero, whereas, you know, for the princes of the Renaissance, their heroes were people like Julius Caesar and Augustus. Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so Florence is in this terrible state that the whole city is surrounded by imperial armies. On the 15th of April, which is Good Friday, the army commander, he slaughtered an ass for, you know, for the army to eat on Easter day. Yeah. There's obviously going to be no lamb. The food was still getting in in very, very small quantities via the little town of Empoli, which is in between Florence and Pisa. Pisa was still loyal to loyal to the Republic. Like I say, a little uh, through Empoli that certain convoys of food were getting in. But on the 15th, on the Good Friday, a convoy of cattle was seized on the road and the 20 herdsmen with the cattle were all just butchered. Anybody leaving the city was liable to be shot on sight or arrested and hung. Anyway, that same day, the, the, the government, the Republic, had to fix, they got put fixed prices on food. But what they really did that must have been absolutely horrendous for the, for the people was compulsorily purchase, um, or seeds, I think we call it, all stocks of grain that anybody had in their larder. And they also ordered everybody to announce what they you know, report exactly what they had. In... And was that so that they could share it all out equally? Uh, well, it was so that they could give the proper, the quality food all was all going to the soldiers. Okay. Yeah. 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 But um, so, what, what, I mean, rather wonderfully, one of the things we have is we have Michelangelo's larder list, you know, for the 15th of April. And he had two barrels of beans, half a barrel of vinegar and eight barrels of wine. That's all he had. He had no meat. Wow. Grain no cheese, nothing else, I mean, you know, nothing, no greenery of any sort. Yeah. It was just, and the, the Florentines, the really awful thing is that the Florentines, they knew that they were going to be in for a bad time because they knew that an alliance between the emperor and the pope was always going to be bad for them. Yeah. I think they hoped that they would be able to solve the problem by diplomatic means. And normally that kind of thing would happen, but Clement Seventh, who himself was a Florentine, you've got to remember, and a Medici, obviously, he refused point blank. He had even refused to let, you know, the, the emperor tried to persuade him, you know, alternative ways of dealing with the issue. Um, but, you know, the only thing that Clement was prepared absolutely adamantly, the only thing he would accept was the Medici in control of Florence and the Republic dead. Yeah. Just, it's awful. It does seem extraordinary to be so obsessed with your own family's power. Exactly. It's sort of brutality of it yeah. is staggering. But anyway, eventually they had all sorts of wonderful ideas about how, I mean, that's the thing that was really, one of the things that did amaze me was the the, the ways that the Florentines, once they realised they weren't going to get out of it by diplomatic means, they started thinking of all sorts of other things. And one of them, 
the government one day de debated the idea of sending plague-infected material into the imperial camp. Mm. Well, that had been done before, hadn't it? I, there's various moments in history when diseased bodies were sort of catapulted over the walls. But it's such a stupid thing to do, if you think about it, because I mean, you can't, if you have, if the plague infects the camp, what's it going to do to all who are all around you? Then obviously, and that's yeah. exactly what happened. First, yes. the imperial camp got the plague and then it came into Florence. Yeah, but it, it dragged on, didn't it, till August, the siege? Yeah, it dragged on till August. And, and at one point, by the end of July, 300 people are dying every day and uh, several oh. of those from from the plague and they issued orders that the government issued according to the venetian ambassador the venetian ambassador by the way stayed in florence throughout the siege which i think is quite i mean because he could have left yeah why do you think he stayed well i think because he felt i think he you know he felt loyalty towards them i mean he reported that on just before the just before the city fell that the government had issued orders that the the guards at the gate um, the Florentine guards at the gate, all the soldiers, were to kill all the women and children in the city and burn the, you know, burn the, the physical city. And all the men were to go out and fight to the death. This is the quote, so that with the destruction of the city, there will not remain anything but the memory of the greatness of the soul of its people. And they shall be an immortal example for those who desire to live in freedom. That's the Venetian ambassador's word. So I think... Wow. That's why I think he stayed. I think he, you know, he saw the point. Well, and also he was from another republic, so he was, you know, doubtless a republican himself. But that's very lucky they didn't um, burn the whole city. That would have been a, a huge loss for all of us. <laughs> it would have been a huge loss. Wow. Yeah. And, and how, so, you know, Rome was sacked in 1527, you know, as, as you talked about earlier. I wonder how quickly cities were able to then sort of pick themselves up after a traumatic event like that and then, you know, kind of get back to normal. Did that happen quite quickly or...? or... No, I think it, I think Rome was back... Um, Charles V came back to Italy in 1536 under a different pope. It's now Paul III and Farnese Pope and um, was given a big reception in the city and taken on a sort of tour of the ruins of ancient Rome. And did he put any money into... Did he invest in? By that stage, they had, they, you know, the massive amount of money was spent doing up the city for that event. Right. And that was provided by Charles. Yeah. No, 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 no. That was provided by, that was papal coffers. But Paul was a much cannier, a much cannier, he had a, well, he had a cannier business team behind him, I think. Yeah. Fascinating. It would have been a, a really incredible period to live through, I think, for, for many, many reasons. Um, and I, I have got my one question that I have to ask you. I'd like to ask you one more question before we finish. Um, and that is, if you could pick one of the courts that you have talked, you talk about in your book um, to visit, which one would it be? The awful thing is, I mean, I I know the temptation to, I know what I want to say, but I know, the tragedy of, of, met, of saying, you know, encouraging people to, to go to Mantua is, um, 
would, the city is very small. It would be very sad if it became a huge tourist centre. But well, I, I, I don't think there's, there's not much danger of that happening at the moment. Anyway, but it is the most. I mean, quite apart from what Federico Gonzaga did, you know, with the Palazzo Te and the things like that. There's also the the Ducal Palace, um, which where his his father and grandfather. It's stunning. It is stunning. In the 17th century, the 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 Gonzagas died out, and the a lot of the collection, the, their collection of Titians and various other painters were all moved and bought by other people, which is why we in England have um, the Queen owns the Bathoral collection, our Mantegna's Triumphs of Caesar, who were, which was made for um, Federico Gonzaga's father. Yeah. Yes. Wasn't there an exhibition quite recently of them? Or am I imagining that? Yes. But Mantua is, is quite special. It's a very, it's small and, and it's, it's very sort of, you can sort of see how it, you know, you, you can see everything happening. Yes. Yeah. I know what you mean. It hasn't changed too much. I love those cities. Like, like Toledo in Spain. You can, you can actually feel like you are in the medieval times when you're there. You can feel like you're, you're back in time. Not like Florence, which is, you know, has lost its centre has completely been destroyed. So you yeah. you don't you, you you can get a sense of Florence, but not same way, no. Um okay, so the final question is of course, um if you could have picked something up from one of these three scenes and um brought it smuggled it back to the present with you, uh what would it be? I think it would be the it would be a piece of plaster off one of the houses in Florence which were daubed with the with the sign poor but free oh i like it that sums yes. it up their defense and their yes stalwart defense and their passion their passion for 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 the republic wonderful um it's been really interesting talking to you mary i've really enjoyed it thank you so much for coming on that was me violet moller speaking to mary hollingsworth last week her book princes of the renaissance is out now and it is a real treat. It's absolutely full of the most beautiful colour pictures. It really is a sumptuous celebration of the Renaissance. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Goodbye.